All right, let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. We're going to be talking about the church in prayer this morning. The church in prayer. Now, I'm not talking about individual prayer. I'm talking about the church praying, the people praying. A lot of lessons here for us today that we trust will be a blessing to you. Notice beginning in verse 14, the scripture says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and, carry, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch that this field is called in the proper tongue Al-Sadama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take." Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Prayer in the local church. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I beg you again today for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, take the word of God deep into hearts. Challenge us, I pray today, about this matter of praying, praying with one another and the importance of it. And God, I pray for any who are lost, may they see that they have no ground upon which to pray until they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Somebody once said a prayer... Probably the most horrifying sight to our enemy Satan is the church on its knees. No doubt the devil loves it when a church doesn't pray. I mean, after all, you've got special promises. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You have promises that if two of you shall agree on anything on earth, it shall be done. Now, I'm not going to knock the lack of prayer on Wednesday night so-called prayer meetings. Uh, actually, that's just the title that's given to the meeting a lot of the times. Um, I like to say Bible study, uh, Wednesday night Bible study. It doesn't make any difference what you call it. Basically, we meet together. We sing songs to the glory of God. We hear the preaching of the Word of God. Some people stay around afterwards and pray and praise the Lord for that. It's interesting, though, to look through the book of Acts and to view the prayer life of the New Testament church 
in the book of Acts. There are a lot of lessons for us. Now, as I said in the very beginning, uh, you look at the Word of God here and you understand that you are not on the basis to even pray until you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you want to come unto the Father, you've got to come through Jesus. You're rejecting Jesus. You've got no basis upon which to even get your prayers heard, yet alone answered. Now, that doesn't mean that God hasn't done some things for you in your life because it's the goodness of God that bringeth thee to repentance, the Scripture says in Romans chapter 2. But if you want to get through to God in prayer, what you're going to have to do is come through Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator before man and God, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He is the mediator. If you're praying through Mary, you're not getting any higher than the sound of your voice. You've got to come through Jesus Christ. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will do it, the scripture says. Well, in this particular passage, of course, Christ has already gone to the cross of Calvary, died for our sins. He was buried. He rose three days later from the dead. 40 years or 40 days of ministry and then he ascended up into heaven. Then for the next 10 days, the scene picks up in Acts chapter 1. When 120 were meeting in the upper room at Jerusalem to pray and they prayed for 10 days. Now the reason they were doing that was because first of all, Jesus commanded them to do it. He said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, he said, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, an interesting thing about this passage, because we know from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that 500 brethren had seen the resurrected Christ. But in the upper room, there's not 500 praying for these 10 days. There's 120. In other words, the majority of the believers were not in this prayer meeting. They may have been in the same city, but for some reason, the majority were not in the prayer meeting. Now, that's an encouragement because you don't need the majority of the Christians in order to get through to God and to see God do some great and powerful things. After all, in chapter 2, when they go out to preach for the first time after the ascension of Christ, we find three thousand coming to the Lord Jesus to be born again. What a powerful thing. I'd love to see it. Well, we can't see it today. We don't have 3,000 here. Isn't that right? You can only have people saved that are under the hearing of the word of God. Now, I know, I don't know how many may be watching over the internet, how many lost may be watching, but I doubt we're going to see 3,000 get saved today. But I'll tell you, we'd be excited with one. And heaven would be excited with one, for there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth, more than ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. If you're here lost today, if you've never been born again, we implore you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, accept him as your personal Savior. And the Bible declares this, but as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, while Jesus, during the time before the ascension, after the resurrection of Christ, he appeared to his disciples many times. 
he had given them some very strong commands. He said in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus commanded them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now think about that. At this point, as far as we know, the only believers that there were were in the Holy Land. No place else. And they have a responsibility to get the gospel out to the entire world. Jesus ascends up into heaven after 40 days in the first part of Acts chapter 1. Now the disciples, though, do not go out and begin to preach the gospel. They do not go out and witness because Jesus had said, But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So we find these disciples not going out and witnessing and they're not being disobedient. Jesus said something's got to take place before you go out and witness. In verse 8 of chapter 1, He said, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the the earth. The early church was seen praying many times and there's a number of lessons that the local church today can definitely take from this first church in teaching us something about corporate prayer, about the responsibility and the power of corporate prayer of that local body of believers. And sad it is that so many people miss these blessings. I want you to notice some things. First of all, this prayer of the church was unified praying. Say, what do you mean? You know, they were actually there for the same purpose and praying about the same thing. If you look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, These all continued with one accord. And they hadn't started making accords yet. Uh, so we're not talking about a car. That was 120 in one car. That would make it a clown car, wouldn't it? That just wouldn't work out. No, they're in one accord. They are in agreement. But wait, go over to chapter 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Go down to verse 46 of chapter 2. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Go over to chapter 4 and look at verse 24. In chapter 4 and verse 24, it says, And when they heard that, They lifted up their voice to God with one accord. You go over to chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And then you go on down to chapter 15. And uh, notice in verse 25 of chapter 15, the scripture says, It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord. This church was together. We live in a day where everybody wants to tout their individuality. But let me just say on the part of believers, there are some things we're to be in one accord about. There's not to be a difference. We are to be the same about a lot of things. And this matter of prayer, we ought to be in one accord about praying. We do too much very selfish praying. 
I mean, we want healing, we want money, we want things to be better, we want hurts to be taken care of, and very seldom is there a one accord about praying for the souls of lost men and women. Very seldom is there praying that God would give us power in getting the gospel out to a lost and dying world. You look at what these people prayed for. And they didn't pray about individual petty needs. Now, that's not to say that we can't. In everything with prayer and supplication, we're to make our request known unto God. That's true. But when it comes to corporate prayer, we ought to have a purpose for the time of that corporate prayer. This church was singular in purpose, and it was singular in goal. They didn't desire ease. They didn't desire comfort. They didn't desire luxury, and they didn't desire popularity. They desired their God to be glorified, and that the purpose of Jesus coming to die for the lost, to be raised from the dead, after all, Paul writes that he came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. If there's anything we ought to be in one accord about, it's about the salvation of lost souls. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, one of the most amazing verses in the New Testament to me. Because here's the Holy Spirit of God writing to a local assembly of believers. We don't know how big it was. He spends the entire book rebuking them over a number of different things. And the first problem he rebukes them about is the the, uh, matter of division among the local church. And he makes a command to a church that seems almost unbelievable. You look at verse 10, and I want you to think about it. As they're sitting there listening to this verse being read to them, what must have been going through their mind? For it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Brother Popwell, is that even possible? Is it possible to get three people together this way? And yet, he's writing to a local church, giving a command that this... We don't know how many there were. God doesn't tell us how many were in the church. We know that there had to be several by this time. I doubt that it was a mega church, considering all the problems that they had. But one of their main problems was this. They weren't together. And so he tells them, you know, with all the problems you got, here's something you... Here's how you get it taken care of. Let me tell you, by the way, how you can correct a lot of problems in your family, a lot of problems in your life, a lot of problems in your church. Get on the same page. Just get on the same page. It's amazing what can be done when the church gets on the same page and agrees. As a matter of fact, since we're turning a little bit, go over to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And notice what he says. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, 
Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Here was a church praying in one accord. This is unified praying. The people of God needed wisdom. The people of God needed power. I mean, after all, they were going to be preaching to a group of people that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's part of the subject of that first message by Peter on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. And he tells him, you've crucified. You've crucified him. And God raised him from the dead. Remember, at this point, they're going to go out and preach. And they do not have a New Testament book to quote from. None of the books of the New Testament have been penned for man yet. He couldn't get up and give the Romans road. He had to give the truth as he knew it from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the Old Testament. They were not to do what seemed right to them. They were to do what was right to God. And that is the key. Well, how do we know the will of God? Well, thank God, we not only have the 39 books of the Old Testament, we've got the 27 books of the New Testament. We've got God's finished revelation. We've got everything that we need to know about what we're to do and how we're to get it done. Perhaps here's the place where an awful lot of churches fail when they call a pastor. No unified praying. They know what they want to hear. They know what they like to hear. They know the style of preacher that they want to hear. They want to know what the spirit is going to be like in the church. And yet they haven't gotten together and prayed. Not even one night. I doubt that there are very many pastors that are called to churches after the church spent an entire night, all night in prayer seeking the wisdom of God. It is so uncommon today because the emphasis, unfortunately, in most of our churches is not in unified praying, getting the mind of God. James chapter 1, verse 5, the Bible says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like the waves of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. So one of the reasons for praying together was that they, had, they were unified in their prayer time. Their hearts knit in one accord. Secondly, It was corrective praying. You look at verse 24. Now, they've already been praying. That's mentioned in verse 14. In verse 24, it says, But unto them, uh, let me get back to this Acts. It would be a good idea if I turn back there. Acts chapter 1 and verse 24, where it says, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, Show whether these two thou hast chosen. And he's talking about somebody to take the place of Judas Iscariot who had gone out and hanged himself. They were short one disciple from the band called the Twelve. Now I've read commentators who've suggested that the church never should have called Matthias. They never should have picked him up because definitely Paul 
was the 12th apostle. Interesting thing, if you were to read Herbert Locklear's book on all the apostles of the Bible, you find that there are 17 different men who are called apostles in the New Testament. Now, there were 12 who were the 12, but there are others who are also called apostles in the Scripture, and we could spend a long time just studying that, but that's not the main take in the message today. The point is... Uh, as we look at this passage, they were short one. And while they're praying, Peter speaks up and he quotes from the scripture. And the scripture said that Judas's place was to be taken by somebody else. And so here they are. They had been praying. Peter, of all places, goes to the scripture. He doesn't say that it seems good to me. He's saying, here's what the Bible says. And if we're going to see the power of God, we need to do what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, let me give you six reasons why I believe they were right in choosing Matthias. And you might want to pen these down or simply you can listen to it again on sermon audio. That would be fine. But number one, they prayed together before their decision. Now, that doesn't guarantee that they make a right decision, but at least somebody didn't just speak up and said, I, I think we ought to do something about, uh, about Judas being gone. No, this came out of prayer. Not only that, they supported it with the Scripture. Because the Scripture said his place was to be taken. They didn't do this on a whim of their own. They had a Bible basis for what they were doing. Number three, they prayed again before they picked the person. So here's been a good time and an easy time for God to say, whoa, hold up. You don't need to be picking somebody else. Number four, they did it biblically. The Bible says they chose by lot. According to Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. In Proverbs 18, 18, the lot causeth contention to cease. So they did it by lot, which is exactly how Scripture said it was to be done. Not only that, number five, God never said it was wrong. And number six, power only came to them after they chose Matthias. They chose Matthias, and notice in verse 26, and they gave forth their lots, the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. You see, it's after that, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And then they went out to preach. And according to verse 41, 3,000 people get saved. It's like God's stamp of approval on everything that they had done. No rebuke from him, no hindering say, back up, you need to rethink this. And God could have spoken to them. And he doesn't rebuke it. I believe it was in prayer. Their need was made known to them and they corrected it. So it was unified praying when the church got together. It was corrective praying when the church got together. Not only that, it was powerful praying. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, were confounded 
because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now, let me put a parenthesis in here since the word tongues is mentioned. It's a good word. There's a Bible doctrine on proper tongues. Let me just say that the jibber-jabber that is passed off as tongues today, they're not Bible tongues. And the day of Pentecost, when they spoke in other tongues, the Word of God makes it very plain, not once, but three times that they spoke in tongues that were not their own. Notice in verse 6, it says, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now that's important. Then in verse 7, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And then for the next four verses, he names the different languages that were spoken. None of them are a jibber-jabber. None of them are unknown languages to mankind, but they're all known. When somebody says, but I speak in the language of angels, then why is it every time in the Bible that an angel spoke, he spoke in the languages that men understood? Every time. Now, I'm not here primarily to preach on tongues or that. I'm just simply giving you what the Bible says. So it was powerful praying. Souls were saved as a result. You know, the truth is any church can do a lot of soul winning, go out and knock on a lot of doors, pass out a bunch of tracts, but if you don't have the power of God, not much is going to be accomplished. You see, it's not that our speaking is so wonderful. It must be attended to by the Spirit of God, for He is the one that takes the truth of the message deep into the heart of the lost person. You see, before I got saved, there was a lot I didn't know. Now, if you'd have showed me a crucifix, I would have identified Jesus as the one on the cross. But I didn't know who He was, didn't know He was the Son of God, didn't know that He died on the cross to pay for my sin. I just knew that He was a religious figure. As I started going to that church so I could play softball with the church team, First Baptist Church of Otsego, Michigan, I, uh, I, and I heard the gospel. God made it plain to my heart that he was not just a relig- religious figure. He was the son of God. And that he was dying on the pro- cross to pay my sin debt. And that he was buried and that he rose three days later from the dead. You see, that Holy Spirit had to make that plain to my heart. And he did that. I took Christ as my Savior, not because I felt an overwhelming load of conviction, but I did that because I realized the truth. And the Holy Spirit of God made it plain to me that was the truth. Just like here today, I don't know what each individual knows about Jesus, but he is the Son of God. Yea, he is God in the flesh. And he died on the cross to pay your sin debt. He was buried. He rose three days later from the dead. The Bible says he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And your only hope of heaven is to take him. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You must have the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as your personal Savior in order to go to heaven when you die. This is powerful praying. They received the truth and they got saved. Now think about this for a moment. 
You've got 500 brethren, but you've only got 120 in the upper room. They're praying. The Spirit of God falls upon them. As far as we know, the Holy Spirit of God did not fall upon and fill fill the entire 500, only those that were in the upper room that were praying. And they go out and preach. And in one day, one day, on the basis of their preaching, now filled with the Holy Ghost of God, 3,000 people got saved. Now, the reality is the Bible does not tell us exactly how long they prayed. We know they prayed for 10 days. Now, I'm just going to, I'm going to throw out a couple of numbers to you. I can't give you a Bible verse that gives me those numbers. But I don't think they had prayer meetings like we normally have prayer meetings. Today, when we normally have a prayer meeting, we might pray for an hour, might pray for an hour and a half. But I just got the impression, of course, they didn't have any TV shows they had to worry about missing. You know, they pretty much could call their own time. Let's just suggest that this 120 only spent 10 hours a day up in that room praying together, singing praises to God and getting instruction. But they are in one accord and they're praying that the gift that God would give them, the filling of the Holy Spirit would take place. Let's just say they prayed for 10 hours a day. They prayed for 10 days. Well, 10 times 10 would be 100. But then there are 120 of them that are in the upper room. So each person would have prayed for how long? An hour, 100 hours. But now you've got 120 of them. Multiply 120 times 100. How many man hours or man and woman hours? Because there were women that were in this prayer meeting as well. How many man hours of prayer had gone up in 10 days if they prayed 10 hours a day? How many? 12,000 hours. All right. How many got saved? 3,000 got saved. That's what it says in verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now you divide that 3,000 into 12,000. And how many hours worth of prayer is that per soul? And yet we think we're going to see a bunch of people saved praying for five minutes before we go out and knock on doors. And we wonder why that it's not uncommon in most of our churches to only see one get born again in a week. And we begin to understand perhaps somewhat about why the Lord added to the church daily why these people were praying. And this kind of praying is powerful praying. So as we study the scripture, it was unified praying, it was corrective praying, it was powerful praying. I remember hearing about two preachers that were talking together. And the one preacher was curious. He asked the other preacher, he said, how, how long do you pray in the morning? He said, well, I, I try to pray at least two hours a day every morning. And the other preacher said, man, I've got too much to do. I, I, can't, I can't pray two hours in the morning. Too much to do. And the preacher that was doing all that praying said, well, I've got too much to do not to pray two hours a morning. Now, I'm not saying two hours is a magic number of correct praying. I'm just simply saying we, have, we are not using what God has given us 
to have power with God and in reaching people. We think somehow that our, the way we make our presentation in our soul winning plan is what does it. It's not what does it. You need the power of God. Winning of the lost is still God's work and he commands us to go out and tell others. Well, let me hasten on. Not only unified praying and corrective praying and powerful praying, but it was growing prayer. Look at verse 42 of chapter 2. After the 3,000 get saved, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So we've just gone from 120 praying together to now at least 3,120 praying together. Is it any wonder that when you get to Acts chapter 4, you're going to find 5,000 men getting saved? The numbers are absolutely phenomenal in the first part of the book of Acts to the thousands of people that got saved. And we look at it and say, why? How about prayer? You see, this was prayer that continued to grow with the number of believers. These people are praying. The new believers are praying, but they're not just praying. For you'll notice back here in verse 42 again, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In order for them to, these new believers, to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, they had to be there. There was no live streaming. There was no radio broadcast. They had to be there to continue in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. New believers need that. They need to be taught. They need fellowship, and they need that fellowship in their prayer time as well. They need to learn how to pray. I remember several years ago, one man to Christ, this was up in Otsego, Michigan. He was one of the local insurance men. He happened to be a Methodist. He was a nice guy, good guy. Uh, we got to talking to him about the Lord. And we asked him, do you know if you die tonight, you go to heaven? And he says, well, no, I don't really. And so I said, do you mind if we take a little time here and show you how you can have eternal life and know you've got it? And he said, that'll be fine. We went through the gospel. It got to the end. I said, wouldn't you like to trust Christ as your Savior? And he says, yes, I would. And I said, why don't you go ahead and just pray right now and ask the Lord to save you? Now, this man was a deacon and leader in the church that he attended. He could just as much have been a Baptist as a Methodist. I'm not picking on the Methodist here. And uh, he looked up at me and he said, I don't know how to pray. I said, you don't know how to pray. It really surprised me. He said, yeah. He said, in our Methodist hymn book, we just, we got prayers in the back of the hymn book and we just pray what they say. We just read prayers. That's what we've done all of our life. He said, could you please help me? I want Christ as my Savior. Of course, we made the point. It's not the words that you say. But nevertheless, we helped him through that. Saved, became faithful to the church there. Uh, A glorious thing. But the reality is, This growing prayer as people get saved, that adds to the number of people who are praying. Unified prayer, corrective prayer, powerful praying, growing praying, and it was God-glorifying praying. Go over to chapter 23. Chapter 23, chapter 4 and verse 23. 
chapter 4 of the book of Acts, we've got God glorifying praying. Now, what's just happened? It says in verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Now, the chief priests and elders told them that they were not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. They were not to go out. They were threatened with bodily harm and with jail if they preached anymore in Jesus' name. So these ones that have been arrested, they go back to the church and they tell the church what they were told by these religious leaders that they would not be allowed to do. Now notice verse 24. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers that were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined for to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Now listen to me. They just found out if they continue preaching, they're going to be beaten, they're going to be arrested. The church gets down to pray. You do not hear coming from their lips, oh Lord, please don't let us be beat. Lord, please don't, don't let us go to jail. No, they're saying, Lord, this is what they've said. And what, we're go- what we want, we want power in proclaiming the gospel anyway. We want you to be glorified. We want Jesus to be exalted. And if you look at the next verse, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now, besides people getting saved, what that did was it brought on more persecution. But they weren't concerned about the persecution. They were concerned that they continued to get the gospel out in power. It was God glorifying praying. When was the last time you got that concerned about the service for God? Lord, please help the preacher to get done before the roast burns in the oven. Lord, please... You know how tired I get at church, how hard it is to sit on those soft pews. Lord, please help us to get, help us to, get to the buffet before the Methodists today. They're concerned about God being glorified. Let me give you, let me give you a sixth one. It was persevering prayer. Go over to chapter 12. We're just looking at how the New Testament church prayed. Corporate prayer. These people are praying. In chapter 12, we find that James, the apostle, has been put to death. James, the brother of John. Peter has been arrested. And Herod has every intention of putting Peter to death the next day. So the church goes to praying for Peter. And notice in verse 5, the Bible says, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. But prayer was made, underline it, 
without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Here's a problem in the church meant together to pray. Now, the reality is they did not believe that God was going to get Peter out of that prison. But according to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 and verse 6, they didn't have to believe that God would do it. They just had to believe God could. For the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. They didn't just meet and everybody say, Lord, please rescue Peter. Man, they prayed without ceasing. Without ceasing. He said, preacher, how do you know that they didn't believe it? Because in the story, an angel comes down, puts the guards to sleep, slaps Peter on the side, tells him to get up and put on his shoes. The angel was not going to put his shoes on him. You read the story, the angel did everything that Peter couldn't do. But everything that Peter could do, like put on his shoes and walk, that's what Peter was supposed to do. Anyway, Peter gets out of the prison. The doors have opened. The the guards were asleep now because the angel had done those things. Now where does Peter go? He's going to go to where the church is praying. He knocks on the door. Servant girl goes to the door. She sees Peter outside at the gate, knocking on the gate. But instead of letting him in, she runs inside to the church. It's praying. And she says, Peter is at the gate. And they say, can't be. She said, no, it's Peter. I saw him. And they said, oh, no, they've killed him. It's his spirit. They did not think he was coming out of that prison alive. And God did it because they believed God enough to pray even though they didn't believe that it would happen. It was persevering prayer. They kept praying. The Bible says, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And he that knocketh it shall be opened. What a promise to keep seeking, to keep asking, to keep knocking. Let me give you one more. It was guiding prayer go over to chapter 13 and with this we'll close now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Serene and Menaean which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul and they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Ghost said separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them They're looking for a couple of men to go out and do mission work to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does the church do? They didn't sit around in a meeting and say, who do you think we ought to send? They got together and they said, God, who do you want sent? God gave them the names. When God gave them the names, they fasted again and they laid hands on them and they sent them out. It was prayer for guidance. Now I'm preaching on this morning this matter of the church and the church praying together. Do you know that there are a lot of people that will never experience anything like this? Because they're not going to a church to pray. They have no intention of ever being part of a special prayer 
Now, I can pray at home. Yes, you can. And you should pray at home. But you need to pray with the believers as well. The church needs to be together and praying for things in one accord. Now, for some, it wouldn't do any good to even go to a prayer meeting because they have no intention of being in one accord with anybody. It's either my way or the highway. We're either going to do it my way. It's what I want, and that's going to be it. George Truett was preaching a message that uh, from the scripture that said, If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that ye shall ask, it shall be done. He brought the message, and there was some movement. Some people were challenged. Well, one lady in the congregation that he was preaching at came up to him and said, Do you really believe that? And he was kind of stunned. He said, Well, it's in the Bible. Of course I believe it. No, she said, do you really believe that if, that if two Christians agreed together on something that God would do it if they asked him? And he said, well, what are you talking about? She said, my husband is a steamboat captain. He doesn't come to church. He doesn't have anything to do with God. And I'm looking for some Christian who really believes that verse who will get together with me in prayer and ask God to save my husband. Well, true, it felt like he was really being put on the spot here about his preaching in prayer. But before he could respond, there was a gentleman in the church that had been in the service. And he said, I'll pray with you right now. He said, those two got off to the side, sitting on a pew together, and they just prayed. Truett said it was just a simple, childlike prayer from these two, praying that that lady's husband would get born again. The next morning, they were having morning services for this special meeting. And who should come and sit in one of the pews but this lady's husband? When the invitation was given, she came, he came forward and got born again. When I went to Tennessee Temple, we had an evangelist who was giving an illustration about prayer. He said when he was in Bible college, there was another student that was there that had nosebleeds real bad. And he was really getting discouraged because he felt like he would never be able to stand up before a group of people and preach. And he felt God was calling him to preach. He went to the evangelist who was just another student at that time. And he said to him, he said, listen, I am so troubled. He said, I've, I have these nosebleeds and they just come on me and it's embarrassing. He said, I'm looking for somebody who will agree with me. That, and he read that scripture again. If two of you shall agree on earth concerning anything, he said it shall be done. He said, would you pray with me? And the evangelist made this statement. He said, at that time, I was just a Bible college student and I didn't know yet that you can't trust all the promises of the Bible. And we asked God to stop his nosebleed. And he said, from that day to the day I heard this preacher preach it. He says, as far as I know, he's never had another nosebleed. There's power in prayer. These promises are real. But the truth is, we won't put them into practice. Why was that New Testament church so powerful? Why did they see so many people get born again? And things changed like they did 
Because they got together in one accord and prayed. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Challenge our hearts today. Challenge us about this matter of corporate prayer, of church praying together. Now, Lord, obviously, my first concern right now is for any that could be here that are not even saved. Until they come to Jesus, nothing I've said to them will do them a bit of good. I pray that they'd come to Christ this morning when we give the invitation and receive Jesus as their Savior. But, Lord, for Christians today, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray together that we may see our God glorified, soul saved for the glory of God, and you be exalted completely in our lives. And we'll thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.